Cut it very short. Um, hi everyone, thanks for having me and thanks to Tampa Tantrum and uh, Taylor Street and all the sponsors for bringing me out here. Um, it was a slightly longer flight than some of the other speakers and I very much appreciate it. So uh, today I'd like to talk about something and it's not what you think it is. Um, I'm a human, you're all humans and hopefully everyone else in the specialty coffee industry are humans. Um, when it comes to being a human and um, having this humanity, there are pros and there are cons. Um, the good stuff is that we can enjoy and appreciate thousands upon thousands of nuances in a beverage that should technically be poisonous for us. We can benefit from the stimulation of caffeine and we can do it all in this wonderful community that we've created. A nice little list. Some of the bad stuff. Um, we can only drink so much coffee before we die. Caffeine is addictive, which is arguably a good thing for some of the business owners in the room. And last but not least is that we have human brains. You've heard it all before, the human brain is the most uh, complex and miraculous thing that we know of um, in the universe. And it's a wonder of nature. And this is all very true, but it's far from perfect. Very far from perfect. Today I'd like to focus on one of these imperfections um, called cognitive bias. Now, these are the glitches in our brains that make us reach questionable decisions or make erroneous conclusions. Um, our brain evolved for a period where running away from predators, eating and procreating were the prime operations. And we're now using that same hardware and that same software for maths, physics, chemistry, finance, and mathematics. It's pretty obvious it's not the perfect tool for the job, but it's the only tool that we have. So today I'd like to spend a bit of time and I'd like to use that tool that we have to do one of the most interesting and impressive things that it can do, which is stopping, stepping back, and thinking about the way that we think. So I'm co guilty of these cognitive biases just as much as anyone else in the world. And I've been caught out by them many times and I've made some pretty massive mistakes. So I'd like to start off with an introduction to my, uh, my beginnings of my roasting um, portion of my coffee career and some of the biases that I fell victim to. And maybe you can relate to them or you can just laugh at me. So... When I got into coffee, it seemed as though everybody was either, either owned a probat, wanted a probat, or was literally installing a probat in their roastery. It was all about the probat, probat this, probat that. Um, I was young and naive, and I was just entering the coffee industry, and it seemed pretty consistent that everyone was all about probat. So, of course, I immediately fall into line. Um, probat's obviously the best. I have nothing against probat, by the way. Um, this effect or this bias is called the bandwagon effect and it's where people do things primarily because other people are doing them. Now this is regardless of your own beliefs which may actually be overridden because of the bandwagon effect. Now this bias is most common in politics but all Americans already know that right now. Before I started roasting I also knew about this thing called first crack. Everybody was talking about first crack. I'm finishing my roast before first crack, at first crack, 10 seconds after first crack, 10 cracks into first crack, or like two and a half minutes after first crack. It was everything that I had heard about roasting um, that wasn't about probats was about this first crack thing. So obviously I'm thinking this is a pretty big deal. So 
I immediately start focusing on first crack and talking to people about first crack. Like, when are you finishing your roast after first crack? Is it first crack? Is it coming up to second crack? It's all about the crack. So this bias is called anchoring bias, and it's where you place too much weight um, on one trait or one piece of information. It's kind of like if you went and bought a used car and only looked at the miles that it had done, but not how well it was maintained. Very, very common. So I get to do my first roast, and there's two main pieces of information for my brain to use. There's the time temperature curve of the beans, and there's this first crack thing. So obviously I'm looking out for first crack, and I'm using that time temperature curve to check it out and see what's going on. And the roast kind of stalls a little bit as the crack happens. And immediately I'm like, something's going on here. This is like, this is the moment. This must be where the money happens. So this bias is called saliency bias. And it saved our ass a lot when there was a shadow in the reeds that might have jumped out and killed us. Um, it's where we attra are attracted to something because it sticks out. It's salient. So during a roast, there's only one noise and there's one slightly weird endothermic event that happens and they both happen at the same time. So I was damn sure First Crack was doing something really interesting. I tasted a lot of, a lot of roasts over the next few weeks and months and I started to no notice something, that First Cracks that were louder tasted better. Now, this one's called illusory correlation. It's where your brain takes two disconnected things and starts making connections between them. Um, the reality was my roasting was so awful and so all over the place that anything could have been correlated to anything. I was awful. It was, I was literally just starting out roasting. Um, and because I was focusing on first crack so much because of those biases before, I was correlating it to whatever I could get my hands on, which was quality. So illusory correlation was telling me that loud first crack means tasty coffee. After a few more weeks, I started playing around with First Crack and I started trying to manipulate it to make it louder, to make it softer. Um, what can I do here? How can I um, make sure that this First Crack theory is, is a reality? Um, so congruency bias is a big one in the scientific field. It's where you run a test or an experiment, but you only have one hypothesis. You're only out to prove one thing at the expense of all other possible explanations. And it's really, really dangerous especially in roasting, which is such a complex and interrelated process, you cannot change one thing without changing everything else. But, and there I was just focusing on this one tiny section of a roast to see what would happen. I was a massive rookie. So I started to become really sure about first crack and its effect on flavor. Um, so I, you know, started noticing if it was louder or softer and doing the cuppings. And of course, when I was cupping, I was noticing that the roast that cracked loudly tasted better. Because I wasn't cupping blind, I had what's called confirmation bias. So when I was tasting the coffees, I knew which roasts had cracked loudly or not because of the batch codes on them. And confirmation bias, I'm sure you've all heard of before, it's huge. Every time we see something that agrees with our opinions, it reinforces that opinion that we already hold. And unfortunately, our little brains love reinforcing our own opinions so much, they will blur reality to make it happen again and again and again. And all of these biases together that led me on this little path created an even bigger problem. And that's called a choice supportive bias. So I put in a lot of work over those months and I made a lot of decisions and I did experiments and I did a lot of tastings and I came up with an idea, I did the work, I proved it right, 
inverted commas for proved, and found out that my hypothesis was true. It wasn't actually true. So that's called a choice supportive bias. That idea and that process was my baby and my brain did not want to let it go because I was in deep with this entire cycle. It had sucked me all the way in. And I continued to find correlations between crack noise and coffee flavor for years, but we finally moved slightly beyond that now. So at the moment, I might look a little bit silly, um, but I can guarantee that almost everyone has done the same. Um, we're humans, it's what we do. And I'm sure that all of you, while I was going through this, were thinking of someone else that you've met in the coffee industry who has done something exactly like that. You can think, oh, that guy in the last business I was working at, he, he did that all the time. He was always trying to test one thing. Here's the kicker. If all of you can name someone else who has fallen prey to those biases, it's highly likely that there's someone else naming you in their head. So it turns out we're happy and eager to point out the biases of other people, but we're loath to point out our own biases. And this one, this especially evil one, is called the blind spot bias. So today I'd like to focus a bit on a specific blind spot that the coffee industry falls prey to time and time again. And uh, it's not as simple as the previous examples, so I'd like to spend a bit more time on it and go through it. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. So the Dunning-Kruger effect has a pretty interesting story. It's, it was a study inspired by a man named MacArthur Wheeler, an American guy, many years ago. And in one day, he robbed two banks. Walked in, robbed one bank, walked out, went to the next bank, walked in, robbed it, walked out again. He didn't wear a mask, he didn't do anything. He literally just walked in and robbed them. And then he went home that afternoon. The police caught him that afternoon and brought him into custody. And he was absolutely incredulous as to how they could find out that it was him. He thought that he'd gotten away completely scot-free with the robberies. And the police were sort of wondering what was wrong with this guy. Um, MacArthur explained that he covered his face with lemon juice because he'd heard that it was used as invisible ink. So he thought that his face would be invisible to the security cameras, which in retrospect is a you know, pretty massive error. Now, there were two researchers at Cornell University, David Dunning and Justin Kruger, who thought that this was pretty curious. So they decided to dig a little bit deeper. So they tested a whole bunch of undergraduate students on some really basic stuff, um, grammar, humor, and logic. Just really basic tests that you know, covered a few different bases. And the students did the test, and then the researchers showed each individual student their own results, and they asked them to rank themselves in the class based on their own personal results. They didn't see the results of anyone else. The students who did very well estimated accurately or slightly below their actual rank, whereas the incompetent students ranked themselves extremely high. In essence, they were getting Ds and Cs Oh, sorry, they thought they were getting uh, A's and B's, but they were actually getting D's or maybe even F's. The Dunning-Kruger effect explains that the newer you are to something, the more likely you are to think that you're good at it. And this is because as a newbie, quite simply, there's so much that you don't know, you don't know. Now, I'm sure we've all witnessed this in our friends or peers. Um, someone sitting unwittingly on top of Mount Stupid. Um, maybe they've just recently watched a documentary on GMO foods and now they're the genetics expert of the planet, or they did an HTML and CSS course online and they're Mark Zuckerberg, or maybe they started CrossFit. <laughs> it's, it's, 
It's really obvious that they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Um, but they think that they know what they're doing. And it's only because they know so little about the topic that there is a literal trove of data and information that they don't know that they don't know. So it's perfectly plausible for them to think that they're doing well because they, don't, they just don't know. that They don't know all of this other stuff. So in the coffee industry, there's also newbies on Mount Stupid. We have the people that have just entered the industry and all of us at one point probably sat on that Mount Stupid. Um, you can probably all think of someone that you know right now who is on that Mount Stupid. Um, and uh, after a while you sort of realize, okay, maybe there is a bit more to this coffee thing and you sort of move down into what's called the Valley of Despair, uh, where you realize that yes, there is a lot more to this coffee thing. Uh, maybe I'm not the best barista in the world after a few months. You probably think that you've moved off Mount Stupid. <laughs> but there's more. Just because you are now better than you once were doesn't mean that you've reached the pinnacle. Uh, there are an endless number of Mount Stupids as you progress on any reasonably complex topic. So today I'd like to argue that almost all of the specialty coffee industry is sitting on Mount Stupid number two. And I don't want this to seem insulting because I'm up there as well, we all are. Some of us are climbing it, some of us are on the top, and some of us have you know, just begun to realize that maybe we're not so good after all. But on average, everyone is sitting on Mount Stupid number two. So specialty coffee is really, 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 really new. It's so new it's a baby. Compared to the other liquids humans make for pleasure, it's not even a blip on the radar. Beer is 9,000 years old, Wine, um, eight and a half thousand years. Tea, four thousand years. Coffee, five hundred years. And specialty coffee, where we actually care about the taste, like people did for the entire time of all of those other beverages, maybe fifty years. So, it's safe to say that we don't know as much as the some of the other beverages out there. That we are, in fact, a baby. Now, I will concede that the last 50 years also happened to coincide with the greatest leaps and bounds in technology and um, various innovations across all industries. Um, so we definitely did advance quite quickly in those 50 years, but so did beer, wine and tea. So we're still behind. We didn't get a head start by any means. So we know fairly little about coffee and what we don't know could probably fry our brains if we chanced upon it. So there's a lot of work to be done, decades of work, maybe even centuries or millennia of work to be done. Um, I think you'd all agree as well, there's a lot of ideas that need to be had, a lot of inventions that need to be made, a lot of current ideas and um, methods and technologies that need to be challenged openly and aggressively. Except that's not really happening, at least not on the scale that I believe it could or should be happening. Um, instead, what I see is specialty coffee sitting around masturbating about the third wave. Um, we congratulate each other on showing those big second wave companies who's boss. Um, we drink our own Kool-Aid and we release marketing that says we're zero compromise, producing the best coffee possible. We never stop improving. When really the harsh reality is that most specialty coffee businesses have stalled. Um, if you look five years ago to today, we are using almost identical equipment to produce almost identical drinks in a nearly identical fashion. Um, there is so little that has actually fundamentally changed about the way that we make and serve coffee. 
the most innovative things to happen in the roasting to brewing end of coffee in the last few years were realizing that baskets sucked and needed to be reinvented, realizing that flat burrs actually worked for espresso, even though we kind of already knew that, and then realizing that manual brewing was slower than batch brewing and we probably should have just been batch brewing anyway. And Scott Rao released a book. <laughs> in between all of that mucking about was way too much latte art. A lot of those annoying postcards you get with bags of coffee and endless videos of roasters visiting farms and smiling people. It, I feel like almost all of our collective energy over these past few years has been spent on mutual gratification and marketing. To bring that back to Dunning-Kruger, we think we're scoring A's, but we're really scoring C's. Now, if we're not doing much to improve, then we must be happy with where we are, which is why I say that we're an industry of Dunning-Kruger sufferers. We think we've squared the circle when our work has really just begun. Now, remember when I talked about the Dunning-Kruger experiment, there were all those poor, unwitting students, and they sucked. Didn't you want to reach out and just tell them that they weren't doing so well? It wasn't, their cause wasn't absolutely empty. If you reached out and told them, they could have pushed themselves off that Mount Stupid and towards progress. There was actually no barriers except a mental barrier that was stopping them from moving forward. They were all intelligent young people. Didn't you want to reach out and help them? Because when I heard the story, I really wanted to reach out and help them because it was such a simple solution. Destroying that perceived reality is the only way to push past Dunning-Kruger. The fundamental rule of Dunning-Kruger is you don't know what you don't know. So if you don't know you're not doing well enough, you don't know that you're not doing well enough. Now, I'm not saying we're stupid, and I'm not saying we can't be better. I'm just saying we need to get past the self-congratulatory circle jerk that seems to be going on right now, and we need to push past that Dunning-Kruger effect and never stop improving. Now, to do this, we need each other's help. I need you to tell me when I'm not doing well enough. You need me to tell you when you're not doing well enough. We all need each other to tell each other when we're not doing well enough. We need debate, we need criticism, we need public disagreement, we need to bruise some egos that may have grown a little bit too large, we need to be wrong. Being wrong's okay. We need to have the courage and conviction to stand up for our ideas and our products and to sometimes be right because we put the work in. But it's just equally as good to be wrong because that proves that you're moving forward and changing. But we never criticize each other. I never, ever hear open yet constructive criticism about a coffee company, especially a coffee company that's popular. It's almost as though there's a weird magic spell that's going to be broken that if we criticize each other about specialty coffee, the whole thing is going to fall apart and our charade is going to be found out by all of our customers. And criticism is definitely happening, and I know this for a fact because I do it myself and I see other people, they do it with me and to me, but that's behind closed doors. It's not out in the open. And the only thing that criticism behind closed doors does is fuel your own ego, which furthers your own Dunning-Kruger effect. It's not very helpful. So at the moment, our balance is completely skewed to the congratulatory, passive, cautious, ultra-friendly, ego-fueled stagnancy that seems to be going on right now. Now, I'm not saying we should all start being negative assholes, because at the other end of that spectrum is hostility, um, negative criticism, uh, and it's just unproductive. So obviously we need a balance somewhere between the two. So 
I have five ways that I would like to suggest that all of us can move past the Dunning-Kruger effect to move forward. Uh, the first one is just to be cool. Um, and this should go without saying, but there seems to be such a strong relationship between giving feedback or providing criticism and being a jerk. Just because you're telling someone that um, they're not doing well enough, it's not an excuse for you to one-up yourself or show them that you're better than them. It's you lowering yourself to their level to help them out and to lift them up. We need to separate those two things. It's not hatred, it's just a disagreement. Next is to congratulate, which might seem weird that I'm saying you should be criticizing everyone and I'm also saying you should be congratulating. You need to congratulate when it's deserved. So if something is average, it doesn't really deserve praise. If something is better than average, you need to lather the praise on so that it's worth more and that that response to praise is much more healthy because it's due to something being excellent. If something is below average, then it should never receive praise. It should receive the opposite, which is healthy criticism and feedback. Now, you have to also be relevant when you're criticizing someone. Nobody wants to be told they're not achieving something, especially if they're not trying to achieve it. Now, I'm sure everyone here who has run or operated a venue has seen a review on Yelp or something. Maybe your goal was to produce juicy sweet coffee and someone came onto Yelp and said your coffee was too juicy and sweet. And you sort of threw that review away because it was completely irrelevant. That same irrelevancy can happen with professional feedback as well. If someone is trying to roast dark, heavy, chocolatey coffee and you tell them that they're roasting too dark, you look like an idiot. So you need to make sure you understand what someone else's goal is and you need to understand what they were trying to achieve before you can actually give them meaningful feedback. And the opposite of that, if you're soliciting feedback, you need to make sure they understand what you were trying to achieve or you're just going to get noise coming back in the other direction. So if someone is screwing up and you don't tell them, you just put them in a really bad spot because you gave up on them. So remember back to that experiment and those students. It wasn't really their fault that they were doing wrong. All they needed was that little push to push them off Mount Stupid. Don't give up on each other and help them. Give them that little push and that's all it takes to begin that process of improvement. And lastly is to stay hungry. So giving feedback is really tough and it's especially difficult to navigate that awkward moment when someone asks you how that coffee was. Because you either go, it was great, thanks, which is the default answer, and they smile at you and then walk away. Um, or you have to do this weird courtesy dance where you say, hey, can I give you some feedback about this coffee? I really like you guys and I respect your company and uh, I sometimes have good coffee here and I don't think that this coffee was super great and I want to tell you why, but I don't want, to, you know, I don't want you to think that I'm an asshole and I'm trying, to be, I'm trying to be helpful. If we have to do that every single time we give feedback, no one's going to get anywhere. The opposite is I don't want everyone to go and start criticizing everything that they drink because that's obviously not the right balance either. Instead of wanting to go out and criticize everything, I believe the onus here is upon the recipient or the criticizee. If you want to get out of the hole, then you need to be the one soliciting feedback and criticism from other people. You need to make sure they know that it's welcome. Make sure they know that you will like them more afterwards because they're helping you. It's not a bad thing. Please tell me what you think about this. Don't give me an em empty compliment. If you stay hungry, that's the key. You have to keep that door open to feedback that you can use to improve yourself. 
you don't have to use it all. They can be wrong and you can find out that they're wrong and you can disagree with that feedback, but you need to receive it. Otherwise, you'll never know what could be wrong. So you have to take the good with the bad and better yourself. So there's lots of cognitive biases out there and they all diminish our ability to think rationally. Um, and as you heard earlier today, they also diminish other cognitive uh, rationality uh, in various other areas of the coffee business. The Dunning-Kruger effect in particular is so brutal in coffee because we're young. This industry is exciting and it's growing really rapidly. So it's easy and excusable to think that we're doing really, really well right now. And we are to an extent. But we're not stupid. Uh, we're just human when we believe that. On your own, you can easily fall prey to something like the Dunning-Kruger effect. But as a team, as a community like this, um, we can help each other and push each other off that Mount Stupid um, towards better things. Um, all we have to do is be honest and care about each other enough to give that tough love. Um, so really, we have two choices um, when we leave here today. We can either cover our faces with lemon juice or we can stay hungry. Thank you. Well done, Matt. Thank you. That's excellent. Um, where do we start? So, with negative feedback, do you think, like, how do you harvest negative feedback? Like, because it seems to me that, as an yeah, like, as an industry, we kind of use the internet, which is a pretty bad way of using it in most situations. So, do you have networks or forums that you can, you think people should use to, to get that negative feedback? Or, uh, I don't think that it's a public thing. Um, and I know I said there needs to be public and open discourse about it, but I think when, when you're just beginning the process of feedback, it needs to be with friends and with people that understand that there's mutual um, respect and mutual um, understanding. Um, and then it can start to progress from there into something that is a bit more public. So me personally, um, I do not let people get away with um, empty compliments um, if I want proper feedback for them. And I, and I push them um, to the point where they get uncomfortable. Uh, and they, they don't want to say something bad. Um, this is especially with employees in the business because they think that that'll get them in trouble. Um, and uh, I foster that in two ways. One is to give them feedback as best and as uh, respectfully and um, positively as I possibly can so that they understand that it's a positive thing um, and I let them reflect on that. And then when I ask that of them later, hopefully they can deliver it back so it's yeah it's a two-way street and it's easier with an employee employer relationship to nurture it from the beginning um, but in the industry I think it starts with friends and then yeah works out from there do you want to go to the audience we should get some audience questions Has anybody got a question they'd like to ask Matt coming backwards coming through I'm Dan, Hi, Dan. Uh, I met you earlier can you hear okay um, so I wanted to bring this up in the, I think this relates to the first few talks. Um, I just want your thoughts. Uh, I see in coffee that there's this, uh, there's a, I see the root of a lot of these problems being the same, the root of Mount Stupid being the same as the root of why we are, uh, racist without knowing it or why we don't want to hire this type of person or that type of person. And that's because we're so convinced that we know what we know when we actually don't know what we don't know. Um, and I see until we start making changes with 
how tight we control our processes as if we know exactly what we're doing or telling a customer that they're like, I don't like how your coffee tastes. And you're like, well, it's because you don't understand how something should taste instead of using that feedback to question when yourself, like, is there a way I could make this taste better uh, for my customers? Uh, I just want your thoughts on the general, the, we all wrap our own, you, you talk to any barista, they generally wrap their identity around how carefully they go about paying attention to their details of coffee without looking at a bigger picture. And I, I feel like that's something that we need to try to push out of the industry. Not that we shouldn't be attention to detail, but that we should push out that we know so much about what we're doing already. Yeah, I think there's a really healthy way to do that. Um, and it's uh, nurturing a culture of um, being wrong is okay. Um, it's not the being wrong that's the problem. It's the uh, realizing that you were wrong and that you now have the choice to change the way that you were doing something um, to improve it. And this is something that's extremely taken for granted um, now in the scientific community. Um, a paper comes out and everyone goes, oh, that's been peer reviewed. That is the tip of the spear of this field of science as we know it. That's what everyone is currently believing. Some people will go along and believe it. Some people will then start writing a paper to try and disprove that. Um, and they'll come up with better evidence and then they'll release the paper and it'll be published and then everyone will go, oh, actually, there's better evidence for this. Um, now I'm going to use this practice. It's, there's no ego attached to that. It's um, uh, fallib fallibilistic or fallibilism um, where you just accept that you are not infallible uh, and you accept that things change and that processes change. I hear complaints a lot from people uh, in the coffee industry who say, Matt, things are always changing in the coffee industry. No one knows what's going on. You know, the best practice is always changing, then it was this, then it was that. And I think that's a good thing. Um, if it's aimless, it can be a bad thing. But I think that um, constantly adapting the way you do something uh, because and, and taking pride not in the fact that you're putting care and attention into doing it, the barista should be taking pride in constantly trying to achieve the best they can no matter what the way they, do, they are doing it is. So uh, results-based rather than methods-based, maybe. We another question there? There's one down the back from uh, Mr. Andrew Tully. It's his house, you better ask yeah, a question. Yeah. Right? Thanks very much. Um, Matt, what do you think are our three biggest blind spots in the industry at the moment? So what are, what are the things we don't know that we don't know? Uh, Latte art? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, that's, that's difficult. Um, uh, there are avenues uh, that we are beginning to learn, um, you know, about things that we don't know. Um, and uh, I don't think it's new to anyone, but um, the fact that we still honestly have no idea what's going on in an extraction. There isn't a single human who understands the chemistry of a coffee extraction yet. No one ever has, and no one probably will for a good while. Um, we don't know a lot about that. We... Therefore, we don't have any idea about how roasting actually affects what's going on in the chemistry of the extraction because we don't even know what we're getting out, let alone what we're creating. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess roasting, brewing and agriculture would be the other one. We still have no idea about how to make the best coffee. Um, and that progress is also going to be stifled by the fact that those mines and those um, people who are responsible for improving coffee agronomy are going to be focused on making sure it doesn't die for a while rather than making it taste better. So there's a lot of work to be done in the agronomy side as well. So sorry that wasn't necessarily new ground. 
It's just the same ground we've always been trying to cover. I'm looking to Jen for guidance here. Hmm? Oh, we need to find Colleen. So we'll have one more question while we find Colleen. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, I found Colleen. <laughs> okay, we have one more question. Uh, thanks, Matt, for your talk. Hi, Ben. Hey. Um, I was just wondering, I see education as a really important thing. What do you see as a way to get around teaching people what we don't know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I guess just teaching them to have open minds. Um, and teaching them that it's a constantly evolving practice. And um, I think that's a really valuable source of excitement for a lot of people. Um, the reason a lot of people get into the sciences is because they um, are looking to constantly improve and to constantly change. And if you can um, engender that in your employees and in your training systems, they'll understand that it's a process and um, they'll understand that they should also be looking to improve the processes. So whenever I wrote an employee manual for St. Ali, I always started it off with um, version zero point and then, you know, something. So they understood that it was a, a never-ending work in progress um, and always keeping, you know, that training system open to new ideas um, is the only way. Cool. Well, I think uh, Matt is someone who's known to all of us as someone who uh, releases newfound information. And there's a guy on the internet who goes on and debunks all that information shortly afterwards, and that's usually Matt. So I think uh, you probably invite criticism for that reason, but I think it's, it's one of the reasons why we all hold you in such high esteem. So ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Matt Berger. Thanks, everyone.